listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Tonight we're celebrating the Feast of St. Benedict, the man this church is named after. Benedict was born near Rome around 480 CE. His family was wealthy enough to be able to send him to Rome to be educated, but he never quite fit in, and so he left the city and eventually found a cave in an isolated spot in the wilderness where he lived for three years. One day, Benedict was visited by an entire monastic community. Their abbot had recently died, and they wanted Benedict to become their new leader. He refused, warning them that his leadership style was different from what they were expecting. But they persisted, and eventually they wore him down, and Benedict agreed to become their new abbot. As he had predicted, Benedict was indeed not what they had been expecting, and the very monks who had begged him to lead them now plotted to kill him by poisoning his wine. They were unsuccessful in their attempt, but when Benedict realized that they had tried to kill him, he gathered the community together and said, look, I told you, I told you I wasn't the kind of leader you were expecting, and you begged me to lead you anyway. And then he left that community and returned to the wilderness. It wouldn't be the last time someone would try to poison Benedict. In another instance, a jealous priest will send Benedict a poisoned loaf of bread. Again, Benedict will not be fooled, and he will command his pet raven to get rid of the poisoned loaf. Benedict is often depicted in art with a cup, a loaf of bread, and a raven because of these stories. Now, you might think that if the community you try to lead attempts to kill you, to say nothing of multiple murder attempts, that you might not be cut out for leadership. But that was not the case for Benedict. Eventually, he would form his own monastery, and then another, and then another. Benedict would go on to write down the basic guidelines by which he organized those communities, and those guidelines, called the Rule of Benedict, are still used by both members of monastic communities and individuals like myself to organize their daily lives. The Rule is a short but fascinating little book that describes in great detail what you can expect if you choose to live in a Benedictine community. One of its most revolutionary aspects is the way Benedict chose to radically restructure cultural norms and hierarchies in the creations of those communities. Benedict lived in a very hierarchical social structure in which people were given respect and power by virtue of their gender and their wealth and their family name. But all of that ended when you entered a Benedictine monastery. There was still a hierarchy, but the hierarchy was based on when you first entered the monastery and nothing else. If the poorest man in the kingdom entered the monastery one minute before the king himself, then the first man would always be of higher rank than the king. Additionally, Benedict counseled that whenever the leader of a monastic community needed to make a decision, they should seek the counsel of the lowest ranking member of the community and consider their advice. Benedict structured his communities in these radical and countercultural ways because he saw these sorts of values modeled throughout the Bible and the life of Christ. Now, Benedict didn't ever write a direct commentary on today's 
Old Testament reading, but a lot of his insight and wisdom about how to live a good life can be seen at play in that story. In our Old Testament reading, we learn about a man who has leprosy named Naaman. The Hebrew word translated as leprosy refers to a range of skin conditions that would render a person ritually unclean. Anyone who touched a person with leprosy would also become ritually unclean, so not wanting to become unclean themselves, people would avoid them. Lepers were marginalized and excluded from mainstream society, mainstream Israelite society, and they weren't popular in other cultures either. Now, Naaman wasn't Jewish. He was Syrian. He was a successful military leader who was held in high regard by his king. The combination of his high-status position and his low-status disease seems to have resulted in a sort of mid-level status for Naaman. He may have lost some of his social capital, but he wasn't entirely marginalized either. Naaman had all of the trappings of a successful military man, including enslaved people, enslaved Israelite people. Naaman's armies had conquered the Israelite armies, and as was common practice at that time, the winner took some of the losers as slaves. Now, I can't imagine what it's like to be someone's slave, to be considered someone's property, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be viewed not as a person, but solely as property. It's horrifying. The enslaved girl in this story is of the lowest social standing, She's not just a slave, she's female, she's young, and she's a foreigner. She isn't even really considered to be a person, she's Naaman's property, not even worthy of a name. If I was in that position, I think I'd keep my mouth shut and chuckle gleefully to myself when I saw my captor suffer. Or if I wasn't feeling that vindictive, I'd at least choose to keep my mouth shut because not saying anything was probably the safest thing to do. And besides that, who was going to listen to me anyway? Slaves listen to masters. Masters don't listen to their slaves. And so it's utterly amazing to me that she would choose to speak up and try to help Naaman. That's a bizarre and risky and brave choice. She has compassion for Naaman and takes a leap of faith. I mean, even if she was certain that Elisha could heal Naaman, how could she be certain that he would heal him? someone from an enemy country. It's a risk, and she takes it. And that's shocking, but it's equally shocking to me that anyone bothers to listen to her. You tell a slave what to do. You don't ask them for advice. This young girl tells Naaman's wife that Elisha is capable of curing Naaman's leprosy, and for whatever reason, Naaman decides to give Elisha a chance. I suspect that Naaman's decision to listen to a slave is not an act of wisdom. It's an act of desperation. Despite all of his wealth and power, he cannot control his own health. He wants to be healed, and at least at this moment, he's open to suggestions from very unlikely sources. Anyone who's ever had to face the reality of their own vulnerability, the fact that they cannot control everything in their lives, will know just how scary and unsettling that can be. Naaman's entire career is based on his ability to command and control other people, but he cannot control his own body. So Elisha might be able to help him, but he can't just go knock on Elisha's door. He's a soldier from an enemy army. Some political wrangling will be needed in order to avoid starting a new war. But his king is willing to let Naaman try. Go then, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel, he says. 
So Naaman rolls up to Elisha's house like the high-status man he is, bringing with him all the trappings of wealth and power, ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. His entourage includes horses and chariots. He's a powerful man, and he's used to giving orders. He's used to getting what he wants. And if Elisha really is capable of healing him, then Naaman expects to be healed and healed in style. But I think Elisha sees that Naaman is also a vulnerable man, a scared man. His disease has made him realize that all of his wealth and power cannot protect him. His disease has made him realize that there are some things he cannot control, and he is terrified, and he is hiding behind those trappings of power. It must have been terrifying to realize that the only person who might have the power to heal him was a man from a foreign country. I suspect Naaman's outward signs of wealth and power are just that. They're protecting him from the terrifying reality of just how vulnerable he is. It's another form of armor. Power and status have served him well in the past, and he hopes they will serve him well again. But Elisha is like a wise spiritual director who sees the vulnerable spot that the armor is trying to hide and gently pokes at it, saying, that armor is pretty cool, but what's this over here? Elisha is not impressed with Naaman's power and social status and goes out of his way to show it. If Naaman wants to be healed, he's going to have to shed that protective armor and access the part of himself that was humble enough to listen to a servant girl. Elisha doesn't honor Naaman by coming to greet him in person. He sends a messenger instead, and the humiliation continues. Elisha isn't going to meet with Naaman at all. There won't be a feast or a fancy healing ritual worthy of a man of Naaman's status. If Naaman wants to be healed, he's going to have to take a DIY approach. He's going to need to go and wash himself in the Jordan River seven times. That is not what he was expecting. Elisha has asked him to strip off every single layer of wealth and power and status and do something that makes absolutely no sense. He's not even allowed to use a high-end body of water. Naaman's furious and storms off saying, I thought that for me, for me, he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Naaman has arrived at Elisha's house with very clear expectations. He thought his power and status would earn him not only a cure, but a cure suited to someone of his station. But instead, he gets a second-hand message about a DIY cure in an off-brand river. But all is not lost, because despite his rage, Naaman still has within him a willingness to put aside his expectations and listen to his own servants who try to calm him down by saying, Sure, it's a weird thing to suggest, but isn't it worth a try? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? And he listens, and he realizes that the potential humiliation of smelling like a third-rate river is worth risking the chance if he might indeed be healed. So he takes off his expectations. He takes off the armor of wealth and power and social status. He shifts from a man who commands others and gives orders and becomes a man who listens and does as he is told, and he is healed. It's a truly terrifying thing to strip away our armor and be vulnerable. It's a risky thing to admit we don't have it all together and to ask others for help. But it's the only thing that can truly save us. 
When Benedict invited people to leave mainstream society and form monastic communities, he knew they would only be successful if they didn't hide who they were. He knew they needed to take off the various forms of armor they used to protect themselves and to be the people they were created to be, not merely the people they were pretending to be, in order for the community to thrive. And he knew that they needed to not only break down social barriers, but be willing to listen to each other as well. Over and over again in Naaman's story, the wise people are the ones who society teaches us are the easiest to ignore. The women, the foreigners, the enslaved. Status and wealth do not automatically confer wisdom, and the people who society teaches us that it's easy and okay to ignore actually have much to teach if we're willing to listen. Earlier this year, Kyle Mason challenged us at Idea Exchange to think about who we were listening to. He pointed out that if you only listen to music and read books or get your news from members of the dominant culture, then you're missing out on a wide range of other perspectives, other stories, other ways of seeing. So I've taken some small steps to diversify who I listen to, and it's been fascinating, for example, to listen to the perspectives of Indigenous and Latinx people this past week as we celebrated both Canada Day and the 4th of July. There is more than one way to think about those holidays. If Naaman had only listened to fellow soldiers of similar rank to his own, he would never have been healed. Who might we learn from if we removed our own armor and listened, really listened to people whose experiences and opinions are different from our own? We'll never know unless we try. But if we try, then perhaps, like Naaman, we will experience healing. May it be so. In the name of our God who creates and redeems and sustains. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.